we're in Colossians chapter 3, and if you're able to, I'd love for you to stand with me. I'm going to start reading at verse 1 through verse 4. Those are our verses that we're going to look at today. So let's stand, and uh, I'm going to read. After I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, And of course, that's helping us understand that this isn't just me talking. This is God talking. And so after I say this is the word of the Lord, you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking, uh, you're just thanking the Lord that he would give us his word. He didn't have to. He could have stayed uh, up there and never told us anything, but he, he came down and descended in his son and gave us his words so that we can know who he is. So you're, you're thanking him that he would do that. So starting in chapter 3, verse 1. If, the, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life was hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. You can have a seat. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. And I pray that as we look at these four short verses this morning, that you would um, bless uh, the hearing and receiving of your word this morning. I pray that you would uh, fill me with the Spirit and equip me to be able to communicate your word effectively and teach it. Um, But also, Lord, I pray that all of us, including me, would have our hearts and minds open to the Spirit's leading and that you would use your word this morning um, for those that are in Christ to increase their love and admiration for Christ and their resolve to want to live for Christ. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, I pray that you would open their mind to the goodness of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us, and that they would become a believer this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I haven't preached in a long time, and so uh, because I had coronavirus in the middle of December, and then we had David scheduled and Chris scheduled, and so I haven't preached in like four weeks, and so I, I wrote and kept writing and kept writing minutes for me, and this is eight. So I don't know how long I'm going to preach, but I haven't preached in a long time, and I was pretty excited. So it's only four verses, so thank goodness it's not eight, I guess. So um, anyway, um, so today, today we're in Colossians chapter 3, and you can go ahead and see the title. I don't have a life. Um, and hopefully at the end of the sermon, you'll be saying that as well. And you're like, well, that seems kind of like rude. Am I really saying I don't have a life? I mean something when I say that, and I'm going to explain exactly what I mean. But that's the title, and it's meant to like shock you to say, what, what does that mean? Well, good. Let's, let's look. And what I want you to see is, if, uh, I want you to see, first off, kind of the big thing that Paul's doing as he's preaching or t- writing chapter 2 and 3, and then we're just going to zoom in on 1 through 4. So the big thing, and David uh, has started this for us, if you remember um, over the last kind of couple sermons in Colossians, David has explained for us the Colossian heresy. The, the church in Colossae had a problem in that they were coupling salvation with Christ in uh, other things that they thought were necessary, similar to Gal- to the Galatian heresy, but in Colossae, uh, they had some specific things. And basically, they were thinking, if I do these things, then God's going to see how really devoted I am to him, and then he's going to finally be happy with me. Uh, and now I'll have a right relationship with God. So we're going to talk about that, but there's a bigger thing that Christ, that Christ, that Paul is doing. Well, Christ too, because Christ wrote the Bible through, the, through these authors, but that, that he's doing, I want you to see. So if, if you look at chapter 2, verse 20, I want you to notice the big picture thing that that Paul's doing because he's making some if statements and some then statements and if and if 
then and then. So I want you to see the big four pieces of if and thens that he's doing. He's got two ifs and two thens. So if you look at 2.20, you're going to see the first big if, which if you, with Christ you died. So he's going to do that. Now he's going to contrast that with what we're looking at today. If you look at 3.1, if you have been raised. So we've got this, if you died with Christ and if you've been raised with Christ, then here's some things that should happen. Those are the next two sermons, but you can see it if you look at verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. Now, in our ESV, it says, put to death, therefore. That word therefore is also a then in the Greek. It's, it's the un. So there's your first then. So if you've died with Christ, in verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, then, verse 5, Put to death everything that's, that's earthly in. You put to death sin. And you can also see the next then in verse 12. And put on then, not just put to death, but also put on these specific things of who you are in Christ. That's verse 12. So that's, that's kind of the four points, the big picture points that Paul's trying to do. Now, we're zooming in on if been raised in, in chapter 3, verse 1. But in the big picture, that's what he's trying to say. If you've died with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, then stop sinning and put on these things that... Show that you're a believer in Christ. That's 312. Um, but we're going to zoom in on that little second one in there when it says in 3.1, if you have been raised, if you have been raised, and, and talk about what it means to, to make this kind of proclamation, I don't have a life, or really the kind of sermon title is living like you don't have a life. What does that mean? And he's going to explain to us in these verses one through four about what that means. And so when we think about uh, saying that we don't have a life because that's what Paul tells us there. Uh, if you've died and your life is hidden with Christ, when Christ who is your life. So it's not us anymore, it's him. We see that in three and four. What does that mean? So uh, John MacArthur says this. He says, paradoxically, before Christians can reach the world, the Great Commission says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so... Um, we live in the world, but we're not of it. David gave the, the illustration last week, which I really love, is um, we live inside of a submarine, and the submarine's inside the water. And so we're in the world, but we're not, there's no water getting into the sub. We're not letting the world seep into us to where we're becoming like it. But we're in it. There's no doubt about it. And so when we say, I don't have a life, um, what is it exactly that I'm saying? Can you say that? Can you say, I don't have a life? Well, maybe I can, Fudd. What do you mean? <laughs> well, here's what I mean. Um, it's far as too easy for us to think that after we become a Christian, that we still kind of live with our own mindset and priorities in life. Uh, it's easy for me to do that. Bonhoeffer has been, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, a theologian back in Germany in the 1940s, he's been famously quoted by saying this in one of his books. He says this, the cross is not the terrible end, the beginning wise, God-fearing, and happy life when we become a Christian. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And here's the kind of the famous line. When a Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. So what is it that we mean when we say, I don't have a life? Am I actually saying that now that you're in Christ, you're useless and pointless to your life? You don't have a life anymore. Uh, your life doesn't matter to God. And uh, ultimately, in the whole scheme of things, you don't matter anymore. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. When I'm inviting, when I would say Christ is inviting us in to this proclamation of I don't have a life. Of course, our life has infinite meaning. We matter immensely to God. And even our small role still plays an important role in the ever unfolding plan of God. Of course it does. 
So what am I saying when I don't have a life? What is it that I'm trying to get you to sign on to, that I think God's trying to get us to sign on to whenever I'm saying this kind of short, punchy little phrase, I don't have a life? Um, I'm trying to put the emphasis, take the emphasis off of us and put it on to Christ. Because I think that that's what even, this, even these short verses, much less the whole Bible, is doing. If you notice, even just in this one text, verse 1, in Christ. Verse 1, where Christ. Verse 3, with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ. Verse 4, with him, but that's Christ. So over and over, there's an emphasis, a major emphasis on Christ. And so when I say, I don't have a life, what I think Paul is trying to do here is emphasize Christ and de-emphasize our priority making, thinking that we're autonomous now, doing whatever we want, living our lives kind of life. Because that's not what Christ calls us to when we come to him. Now, he's in charge. He's the one that rules and reigns. And so that's what I think that is trying to be indicated to us here. Now, in this particular verse, there is um, Many indicatives and one imperative. Indicatives, imperatives, what does that mean? Just kind of big talk for indicatives as this is what the scriptures are indicating to you that's true about you. Things to believe, things to know. Imperatives, commands, things to do. So there's, there's in the text here, we're going to see three indicatives and one imperative. Um, imperatives are things that, that, as Paul writes by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is commanding us to do. Indicatives are things that we forget and that Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit is reminding us believe this know this is true live like this is true this is an important thing you need to keep in your mind and so we're going to see the indicatives and the imperatives or the things that we need to believe and the things that we need to do so um, the first one verse one well actually I'm going back to 220 if with Christ you died. So uh, you can go ahead and put up number one. So really living like we don't have a life or living with Christ as your life instead of putting the emphasis on you. 2.20 tells us believe that you truly have died. I'm not going to spend too much on, on, on this first, uh, first point because uh, David has talked about the Colossian heresy over two weeks. But in 2.20 when it says if with Christ you died, we need to truly believe that. We need to truly live and understand that once we come to Christ, we have now died. Galatians, not just Colossians 2.20, but Galatians 2.20 uh, makes this really plain in what it means. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, you got to be careful with that. You got to be careful with that because Christ's death on the cross was salvific in that it brought salvation to the entire world, and only he could do that. So when we say, I've been crucified with Christ, we're not making ourselves the Messiahs with him, dying with him on the cross, and also achieving salvation for other people. No, we're just saying, when Jesus died, and he was the one-time payment for all sin, I'm counting myself as having died with him. This is how Paul says it. I've been crucified with Christ, and here it is. And I no longer live. It is I who no longer live. Like, well, I, I'm alive. Here I am right now, standing in front of you. If I pinch my hand, it hurts, right? So what does it mean? We're counting ourselves spiritually have, di- have died in our baptism. That's what the whole point of baptism is. We died, and now we're coming up with a new life in Christ. He says, it is no longer I, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live. So Paul's still agreeing, yes, you're still alive. But here's the way you live now. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith 
and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so um, we believe that we truly have died and that now it's Christ who rules and reigns. So living with Christ as your life means you do have to really believe that my plans, desires, my ways have died. And now my ways now, if I want to do them, need to line up with what Christ wants. When I died, when I died, my plans died, and Christ is the one that calls the shots here. We can easily, and, and I do this too, live our lives believing that we're the ones who are in charge, and we get to do what we want, or what we want to do is just as vital and crucial and essential as God's will, and it's not. God's will is the one that's most essential in our life, and if what we want doesn't line up with God's will, then we follow his will, not what we want, meaning The wants and desires that we have, if they don't line up with what Christ wants, they should be gone. Meaning, our worldly focus, if it does not line up with what the Lord wants us to do, those things should die. He rules and reigns now. That's all I have for number one. Let's move into verse one. Verse one now. So, if you died, you can go and put up number two. You need to believe that. You also need to believe that you've been raised. That you've been raised. Look at verse one. If then you have been raised... With Christ. This can also be translated co resurrected, uh, meaning this fact about the resurrection, it's not a hope is going to happen. It's an, a, a determined, accomplished fact now. You have been raised with Christ. You're not in heaven yet, neither am I. What's true though, you've been raised with Christ. This is speaking of a past act. You have been raised with Christ if you're in Christ right now. You're not in heaven, but what's true is that you have been raised. So always Paul, and in the whole Bible, is kind of continually holding out this already not yet, already not yet. It's already happened, but it has not happened yet. It's, it's true, it's been declared of me, but I'm not quite all the way sanctified, and then I'm not in heaven yet, but what's true of me is I'm justified. And this ongoing kind of already not yet is playing it out. And Paul is emphasizing or putting the stress on the already paradigm. In this particular verse, you have been re- resurrected. Um, and so because believers are in Christ Jesus and Christ has already been raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, believers now can say that about themselves. You have been raised with Christ. That's amazing. Um, that's not ho-hum, I already knew that FUD, click my pen, go to take a nap now. That's something that whenever you, even though you hear it again, you're like, okay, that's amazing. I have been Raised with Christ, and that's what's true right now. Just stop and take it in. Stop and take it in. Think about that. That's amazing. You have been raised with Christ. Since we have been raised with Christ, now a new way of living is As O'Brien says, now we have no private life of our own. Since the life is the life of, our life is now the life of Christ. So Christ's interest must be our interests. What are you interested in? What's Christ interested in? You should be interested in that. I'm not saying you can't have any kind of other interests unless it's ungodly, right? But neutral interests are fine. But what's Christ interested in? You should be as well. You should be as well. So the application that Paul's pushing the Colossians here and us to consider is that we have been raised with Christ by faith. And so our faith is not in ourselves Our faith is in Christ's death for us on the cross. We have been raised. That's something to believe. 
Something that he wants us to believe. Believe that you really have died, but also you didn't just stay dead and you're in this nothingness. You've been raised, but you've been raised with Christ. You haven't just been raised in general. Notice the language. You have been raised with Christ. Now, that he tells us that, if then you have been raised, here comes the imperative. Here comes the command. What it means. Here's what you need to do. That brings us to number three. You can go ahead and put it up. Seek. Set your mind on things above. Look at the text. Right there in the middle of verse one. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. Right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on things that are on earth. He almost says the same thing. Seek the things that are above. And then verse two. Set your mind on the things that are above. So let me just point out first. This is the only imperative in the text. This is the only command in the text. And as one writer says, this is a direct command. It is to be obeyed without question and without hesitation. Continuous, ongoing effort on our behalf is required. It's not optional. As a believer in Christ, you should be seeking him. Setting your mind on him. This is not an option. This isn't a maybe I will, maybe I won't. This is a command. As John MacArthur says, the believer's whole disposition, now as they are a believer, should orient itself towards heaven where Christ is. Just as a compass needle always orients itself towards the north, we should always orient ourselves to heaven where Christ is. We must seek and set our minds continually on Christ. So here's the question. Where is your inner compass oriented? Daily, where's your inner compass oriented? Towards heaven where Christ is or somewhere else? Just as a compass always points to north, we should always orient ourselves towards Christ every morning when we wake up. This, I think, is possibly the most important probing question I'll ask of the sermon today. Think about it. Where do, does your inner compass orient every morning, every day, throughout the day? It should orient itself towards Christ. Now notice, he does not tell us this. He does not say in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, now you are totally free to keep all the rules and laws that God has set out. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, now that you've been raised with Christ, you are on the right track to be the best rule follower ever. Do it. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, since you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above. So are the things that are above, if, if you're told to seek the things that are above, does your mind say then, therefore, okay, then I should just start keeping rules and laws and God's going to be happy. Stop getting drunk. Stop cussing. Stop lusting. Stop having premarital sex. Stop doing other things that God doesn't want. And now that I'm doing that, I'm really seeking the things that are above. I'm just following rules like God wants. I don't think that that's what he's commanding us. I don't think that's what he's commanding us. And sometimes we can think that this is what God has commanded me. Seek the things that are above. Okay, God, I'm really going to start law keeping. I don't think that that's what that means. Because he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is. And I don't think Christ is up there saying, rule of follow, rule of follow, rule of follow. I don't think that's what's going on. Perhaps seeking the things that are above, setting our minds on the things that are above, is not just, is not simply Rule following, but instead, 
It's pursuing Christ Jesus with our heart, soul, mind, and strength with everything that we have, which is not rule following. You will if you do that. But then we're following a person and not law. The law is good, but it's not meant to. As we set our minds on Christ, then we're doing, an, we're doing everything that we can every day and every way to, possible to make sure that we are being with him, loving him, um, because he went to the cross for us, because we once were, as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1, 6 9 through 10 says, um, a sexually immoral person, an idolater, an adulterer. We practice homosexuality, or we're a thief, or we're greedy, or we're a drunkard, or we're a reviler. We used to be those kinds of people who broke laws, but now that we're in Christ, because we once were those things, we set our minds on Christ and we seek Him, and we don't now, since we've been raised, revert back to just making sure we don't break laws, but now, since we've been raised, we seek Christ in heaven. The answer, I think, to this must be a resounding yes. Paul is definitely not reminding us that since we've been raised, now we are free to love rules. <laughs> That's not what he's telling us. Instead, he's telling us it's to love Christ and to pursue him. So let's, let's take a little step back and, and think about Colossae and think about what, what's going on here. Uh, why is Paul saying this? So here's the background on verse 2. And why it's a massive gospel issue. Massive gospel issue. So when he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. When he says that, what's going on? Notice with me, it's not a throwaway phrase. That little phrase there at the end of verse 2 when he says, not on things that are on earth. You see that? Not that things that are on earth. That's not a throwaway phrase. That's very important because in Colossae, Paul is writing to these Colossians who were seeking and setting their minds on things that were on earth because they thought by doing that, it made them have a right relationship with God. They thought that it justified them. What specific things, as David has said over the last two weeks, if you look up uh, at chapter 2, verse 16, and if you were to read chapter 2, verse 16 through 23, and even look at verse 8, you would see a huge list of the earthly things that the Colossians were focusing their minds on. Um, that's the thing that Paul's saying. Don't set your mind on things that are on earth. They were doing that. They were setting their minds on things like food and drink, festivals, asceticism, worship of angels, going about, about on and on about having visions, empty philosophies, human tradition. And he's telling them, don't set your mind on those things. Don't think by doing these things, God's going to see, oh, they really do care about me because they're doing all these things now. Oh, now they can really have a good relationship with me. Now I can usher them up into my presence and they can finally be free. And here's why this is a gospel issue. Because that's inherently the opposite of the gospel. Do stuff so God's finally happy is not the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. The gospel is the complete opposite. And why this is the gospel issue, knowing what Paul is saying. The Colossians were setting their minds on these earthly things specifically because they thought that it gave them a right standing with God. They thought that it justified them before a holy God by practicing these things. They thought doing these things made themselves part of heavenly things. And that is not the gospel. It's the complete opposite. The gospel is do not seek to justify yourself before a holy God by doing things. Instead, 
Focus on what Christ has done for you. That's the gospel. Start with Christ and only Christ. She works in him for the forgiveness of your sin and your right standing before God only. And what they were trying to achieve being with God, because they thought they were trying to achieve it by doing stuff, they never would. But instead, what the, what the very thing they wanted, if they just would put their faith in Christ, they would have. And they were trying to justify themselves. By doing this, um, seeking the things that are above instead of earthly things, we actually do have what the Colossians were wanting, which is salvation. And so Paul implores them um, to keep setting their mind on Christ because they have already received salvation. And so you don't need to be an ascetic. You don't need to go on about visions. You don't need to achieve empty philosophies or practice these festivals. He tells them those things don't give you salvation. Um, or any other act. As Calvin writes, Christ calls us upward to himself. These earthly things actually draw us downward. That's what Calvin says as he looks at this. So setting our mind on Christ above means preaching the gospel to ourselves that our life and our hope and that everything for us rests in heaven with Christ. So now we turn to the actual command here. Look at the command. Seek and set your mind on things above. He's telling us two specific things. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. Now, is this just two sides of the same coin? Is he just telling us the same thing but saying it in two different ways and just kind of being repetitive? Or is he telling us two different similar things? They're different, but they're similar. Um, Let's look at the commands and see there is a slight distinction, and I think it's important. Seek. Seek. He's telling us to seek and set our minds on the things that are above. Seek. Zeteo. Literally, keep seeking. So what's the assumption? What's the assumption, believer, that you already are and have been and will never stop? So believer in Christ, there is an assumption by the, by the Holy Spirit that you will already be and never stop. You're like, I'm not seeking. Well, could be a problem, <laughs> Could be a problem. The assumption is that you are. This indicates present, continual action, inferring that it's already happening. If you're a Christian, you're already seeking Christ. That's, what, that's the assumption of the Holy Spirit because Paul is um, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So are you seeking? Paul, being a Christian, is assuming that we are always doing this. This means that the pattern of our life is ever seeking the realities of the gospel afforded to us in Christ. I don't want you to miss that statement. I'm going to say it one more time. The pattern of our life as a believer is that we are ever seeking the realities of the gospel afforded to us in Christ. Ever seeking the realities of the gospel. So I'll just ask, what does your mind continually seek? What does your mind continually seek? It should be the realities of the gospel found in Christ. MacArthur says, The things most important to us are in heaven. And then he says, We must not be entangled in this present world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Whatever things going on, listen, I know there's a lot going on in the world, and we should care. We should care. We should help people. We should be good citizens. We should love our neighbors. And we must fulfill the Great Commission. 
So I'm not saying become a monk. I'm not arguing for monasteries here. I am arguing for living that the most important things for us are in heaven and living that way. We are here for a while. And we should be great Christians here, around the people around us. Care for them, meet their needs, proclaim the gospel. But never, ever trying to make this our home, because this is not our home. Our home's in heaven. Seek. Seek. Now, that's seek. Assuming that it's continual. What's set your mind? Froneo. Froneo. If um, we have set your mind, think or have an understanding or have this inner disposition of the way you set your mind. One commentator says it this way. Um, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. So there's a distinction between these two. It's similar. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. There's a difference. Continually seek heaven, but also continually think about, have a deeper understanding of. Not just seek it, but have the understanding as well. As MacArthur says, continually thinking the realities that are ours in Christ is to be the pattern of the believer's life, which I've already said. So important here. Um, these are, this is our command, to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on the things that are above. Not just continually seek it, but also to have a deep, rich, ongoing understanding of the things that are above, namely Christ and heaven, namely the realities that are afforded to us in the gospel in Christ. Okay, so here's the danger. Here's the danger. Especially in a postmodern world. You know the difference between modernism and postmodernism? Modernism's absolute truth. Postmodern, everybody's got their own truth. Bad, real bad, not true. Um, There's only truth. There's no someone's truth. There's just truth. Well, if that someone's God, then there is. So here's the problem. So in a postmodern society, when we say, seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above, and I tell you that, and I don't tell you specifically how to do that, then you can just go out and think that you're seeking Christ, seeking the things that are above in any kind of place. And that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Here's the important place. The place that we seek Christ is not arbitrary and subjective. The place that we seek above is not just go figure it out for yourself and what works for you, that's, how, that's good. Terrible. And leads many people astray and away from Christ. So the place is absolutely important. There is only but one source, the Holy Scriptures. If you want to seek Christ, set your mind on Christ. We do it, of course, in prayer um, where he speaks to us, or we speak to him, but also in the Holy Scripture. The Bible is for us. I almost said it like the, uh, what's that, what's in the Bible? Yeah, watch that kid's cartoon, the Bible. I don't know why I said that. Maybe too much Southern Baptist preaching when I was a kid. The Bible, not the Bible, the Bible. The Bible is the only reliable source of knowledge of Christ and his gospel and the character of God and the values of heaven. So this command to seek Christ or to set your mind on Christ is obeyed by being in the book. That's how it's obeyed. So how about this? It's only January 10th. It's only January 10th. You can still start reading the Bible this year on January 10th and probably still do it. There's, there's read the Bible plans on our information table 
Or you could just do the app, which is probably way easier, right? It'll even like read it to you. You can just hit play and it does it for the day and you can drive to work. Um, technology is amazing. But why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we seek Christ and his holy scriptures by reading through the Bible this year? Why wouldn't we? Um, so set your minds on the things that are above. Now remember, I've already said, commands in the scriptures must be obeyed. So this is something that Christ is telling us that you must do. You must, I must, seek and set our minds on the things that are above. So while we're here, seek the things that are above. Set our minds on the things that are above. Pick a Bible reading plan. Here's another way to think about it. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's the same command given to us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set our minds on the things that are above. Think about these things. And all of those things described to us in Philippians 4, 8 are find, found in the scriptures because the entire scriptures, as John 5 tells us, are about Jesus. If you read in John 5, Jesus says, the whole Bible is about me. Not rules, not stories, not just Old Testament people. Everything's about me. That's Jesus' claim in John chapter 5. So... Uh, John MacArthur encourages us with, with these words if we were to seek Christ. He says, such heavenly values dominating the mind. So if we do seek Christ and we have these, these things about Jesus dominating our mind, he says this, if that's going on, it will produce godly behavior. Sin will be conquered and then we will all have humility, a sacrificial spirit, and assurance in our salvation will result. I want those things. That sounds great. And I think MacArthur's right. So that's number three. That's the only command. Now we're going back to something to believe. Verse, go to number uh, four here. Living means this. Believing your life is hidden with Christ in God. Look at this. All right, so I want to make sure we see what Paul is doing. Anytime you see a four, most times you see a four, he's, he's using this as I'm creating an argument. The word four is I'm creating an argument. So grounding what I've just said for, so look at it, it says, set, set, set your mind on the things that are above, seek uh, the things that are above for you have died. So he's telling you, you, you could say, why should I set my mind on the things that are above? Why should I seek things that are above? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. That's why. So Paul's in verse 3 with that 4 saying, here's why you should obey the command right now. Verse 3, because, because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. So the 4 is telling us why. Why should you obey the command? And he tells us two reasons. Because you've died and because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why do we set our minds? Because you've died and you are now hidden with Christ in God. You have died, apothnesco, apothnesco. This is in the past tense. It means you really have died. If you're in Christ, you really have died. Calvin says this, no one can rise again with Christ if he has not first died with him. We must be dead to the world that we may live to Christ. We have to count ourselves that. MacArthur on the believer's death says, in what sense has the believer died? I think that's, the, that's what we really mean. You've died, you've died. Remember that you've died. How? What does that mean? This is a good way to think about it. In what sense has the believer died? In the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. 
The wages of sin is death, and so we must die. By union with Jesus Christ, we died the required death in him. Thus, the penalty is paid, and sin can never have its claim on us anymore. We have thus died to sin in the sense of the paying of the penalty, and now its presence and its power still can affect us, but cannot condemn us. So you're still going to sin, but you're not, no longer condemned, Romans 8.1. So most of us, uh, when we say, okay, I'm going to obey the command, we skip that idea about death and just like go straight to the, I'm in, I'm in Christ. But it's not good to do that because remember, as Bonhoeffer said, uh, when Christ bids a man, he bids him to come and die. The dying part is essential and it took place at your salvation. That's when it happened. When did I die? When I got saved. But that's when you were truly, truly started living. That's when you truly started living. And after you die, you give up your, your rights and now Christ calls the shots which brings us to this little thing here, which might be my favorite part of the verse, of the four verses. Hidden. Second reason. For you died, and look at this, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why do I like that so much? What is it about this? What is he saying here? This is, there's a lot of applications. Every single one of my commentators had a different application. From How would we understand this idea of hidden? The first word uh, the word hidden is meant to be contrasted with died. So since you died, now you're, you're hidden. And so I think here's how the gospel application of this idea of hidden is to be applied to your life. Okay? Now this is, this is risky and rough for you. It could hurt a little. And I'm not like being goofy. I'm being serious. So he, here's, here's, but here's why it's so great, this, this idea of hidden. Take your mind right now. You might want to close your eyes. Take your mind to the worst sinful thing you've ever done. Think about the worst sin you've ever committed in your life. It's not, the, it's not, it's not you should not do this all the time, but this is why hidden is so awesome. Worst thing you've ever done. No one knows about it because it's that bad. Maybe one person, your spouse. Maybe not. That thing that you just hate that you've done in your life, you hate about yourself, that thing that you would hate if people knew. Think about when you did it. How did you feel afterwards? How does it make you feel right now as I'm asking you to think about it? Does it still hurt? Does it still make your stomach feel queasy? That thing, that one thing, and don't miss this, in every other sinful thing you've ever done in your life, if you're in Christ, is hidden. It's totally hidden before our holy God. Your sin, my sin, hidden in Christ Jesus. It's to be forgotten. That's this amazing gospel news and this idea. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And ultimately, it doesn't matter if people find out because you have a chance and I have a chance to boast all the more about Christ's forgiveness, that he even forgives that thing. Like Paul says, I killed Christians. I'm the chief of all sinners, but look what Christ has done for me. My life, your life is hidden with Christ in God and I don't think anything can more be, be more beautiful in the world. This is an unbelievable 
unbelievable, beautiful gospel truth that he's teaching us. In Christ, he is your life now. Look, at the, look how he says it. My life is hid with Christ in God. And he says, when Christ, who is your life? That who is your life, I think, can be transferred over to verse three. Your life is hidden with Christ in God because Jesus is your life now. That, that thing you did and every other thing you've ever done and will do in regard to sin, that's not who you are. Your identity is now in Christ who is perfect. This is an unbelievable truth. Believe your life is hidden in Christ and God. Sin, if you're in Christ, does not rule and reign over you anymore. And that one thing you just can't stand about yourself, gone. It's to be forgotten. If there was not anything more beautiful in the world, if there was anything more beautiful in the world, I don't know what it is. It's one of the most beautiful things that Christians can hear. Forgiven. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. If you don't hear anything else I say today, and you're still trying to figure out the sermon title, just hear this one thing. Um, everybody that's a believer in Christ, we don't have a life anymore because Christ is now our life. Christ is now our life. Praise the Lord, because it shouldn't be mine, then I'm in trouble. Christ is now your life. There's some other ideas of this idea of hidden. I'll tell them to you. Garland says it means we're eternally secure. Bruce says that we have safety in Christ. Moo says eschatologically, it's saying that one day we're going to be with Christ, and until then we're hidden. Beale says uh, an unseen hope is laid up in heaven for us. It's like our spiritual inheritance is hidden, and one day we'll, we'll get it. Uh, O'Brien says that we're safe and secure and untouched by anybody, similar to Garland. Uh, MacArthur also says that we're eternally secure, but we also have now have this new life hidden within the Father and the Son. It's more is what he's saying. Our life will. So it's all over the place, right? But what's true is what he's saying. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. He's our life now. Now, we're going to conclude with this. Verse 4 is our conclusion. And I, I don't know if anything's unbelie- more unbelievable. So we've had indicatives and imperatives. And now he's just going to end verse 4 with this huge, unbelievable promise. Precious promise just to wrap it up for you in verse 4. If you haven't had enough awesomeness in verses 1 through 3, Paul's just going to say, and here, just let me throw this awesome promise to you. Then you will also appear with him in glory. That's pretty amazing. Unbelievable promise given to us. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, here's the promise, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Now, that's not just about making your body better. The main thing is, is you'll stop sinning. That's the best part of our glorious body. It's not that you're going to be fit and finally not have hair where you don't want it and have hair where you do want it. It's not that, right? It's that you won't sin anymore. Awesome. So if our life is hidden with Christ in God and we don't have any life anymore, instead Christ is our life, Jesus Christ is our life now, then when Christ appears and we're in him, then when he does, this is talking about the second coming, obviously, or for, if you die before the second coming, when you go to heaven, then you will be with Jesus in glory. First John 3, 2 explains to us that when he comes, he's going to finally, we will finally understand him. This is what it says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will, and what we will be has not appeared yet. But know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. We have a good understanding of who he is, 
but we don't have a full understanding of who he is. And when he appears, we will finally. And let me just say, that won't be all scary for believers. It will be awesome. It will be awesome. So let's key in on these last two little words. Here's my conclusion. In glory. Look at that. When Christ who is your life appears, then you appear with him in glory. I want to close with Jonathan Edwards, the best pastor philosopher, theologian that America's ever had and probably ever will have. Um, Just a pure genius. This is what he says about uh, being in glory with Christ forever. This is how he explains it. The redeemed will have all their objective good in God. Whenever we're in heaven, this is what it's going to be like. God himself is the great good with which they are brought into the possession and the enjoyment by redemption. He is their highest good, the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. Don't miss that. The inheritance is not a mansion. The inheritance is not getting to go to heaven with gold streets. The inheritance is not finally having your sin forgiven. The inheritance is not getting rid of your guilt pains. The inheritance is not being with your friends and family in heaven. All those things might happen, but the The best thing about the gospel is you get God. You get to be with God forever. God is our inheritance in the saints. Believer's inheritance is that we get God, not all the other byproducts of being a Christian, which are great. I love those byproducts. But the best part is that we get to be with God. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is their great good which they're deemed are to receive at death and which they are to rise at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem. He's the river of water that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. Here it is. Here's the main sentence of this. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what forever entertains the minds of the saints. Glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what forever entertains the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things, which will be they will enjoy angels or the one they'll enjoy one another. But here, this is so good that which they actually enjoy in the angels, or that which they actually enjoy in each other, or in anything else um, that will yield them any kind of delight and happiness, will only be what they see of God in that other person or in the angels. Therefore, it all goes back to God still. So, God will be their everlasting feast. That's what it means when we say, in glory. God will satisfy our souls every single day, and every single day will be new mercies. And so, I'll conclude with this. F.F. Bruce, the day of glory may be future, but its arrival is as sure as if it's already here. For those whose faith is placed in Christ, Christ is already their glory. As certainty as he is their hope. So let's live like we don't have a life and Christ is our life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. You're just so kind to give us your word. And I know, Lord, that the command given here to seek our minds or to seek that which is above and set our minds on that which is above is cumbersome for us. It's just so difficult to 
really achieve day in, day out. And that's why we have grace. That's why we have the gospel. Because we know that we don't. But help us continually do it. Help us continually set our minds on the things that are above. We thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.